Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Philip Sugai. Philip is professor of marketing at Doshisa University in Kyoto, previously a marketing executive at companies including American Express and Muse, I believe. Uh, Philip's work focuses on marketing, marketing research, and sustainable and responsible marketing, which he, teaches, which he teaches to his global MBA students. Philip is the author of the recently released book, The Value Plan, The Essential Guide for Developing a Winning Value Proposition and Marketing Strategy. In the book, Philip provides a practical guide, to, and, and the theoretical guide, I should say, to help entrepreneurs create great products and services that will provide genuine long-term value to consumers. And there's a lot more going on in the book, which we'll address later on in the interview. In this interview, we're also going to talk about Philip's background and career and his professional interests, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as an author. So thank you, Philip, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Lynn. I should mention, uh, if, you're, if you're hearing a little bit of noise in the background, that's the uh, air conditioner where Philip is in Kyoto in the balmy 100-degree morning, <laughs> uh, only, only going to get uh, warmer, I imagine, as the day goes on. So thank you for, uh, for taking the time to do this. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you found your way to a career in marketing. Okay, that's that's. Uh, I'll give you the short version on that one. <laughs> so I'm actually uh, born and raised in uh, Rhode Island. Uh, so I grew up in uh, East Greenwich, Rhode Island, and uh, I actually went to Tufts University in in the Boston area. And right out of school, uh, I had found this uh, old old vaudeville theater that I wanted to um, renovate. And so we created a nonprofit to actually restore this old vaudeville theater. It's called the Greenwich Odium. And one of the things I'm proud of is it's still up and running uh, today. Uh, but so about three years into that venture, I decided that I didn't like begging for money uh, and I wanted to be more in a position that I could support uh, businesses rather than be the one that was always asking uh, for support. So I went to NYU, I got my MBA at New York University. And uh, that was right at the dawn of the internet era, actually pre-World Wide Web. So um, I ran out of all of my savings from my uh, theater days. And so I had to do part-time work. And one of the companies that was looking for a part-time sort of intern or worker was American Express that had just launched this online service called ExpressNet. So I started, I was learning marketing in business school and I had the ability to actually learn real time how people were acting uh, in a two-way internet-based environment uh, right from the dawn of the the internet. So this was on AOL, the old AOL days. Um, So I sort of went through my career working in things related to online business, uh, online marketing. I uh, worked through American Express, and then uh, you said in the introduction I was the head of marketing for a company called Muse, which is an entertainment database company. Uh, and then on vacation from uh, Muse, I met my wife, who is Japanese. Uh, well, she was my girlfriend at the time. We decided to move to Japan, and uh, I found a company called Lightning Cast that was doing streaming media advertising insertion that was interested in opening up uh offices in Asia Pacific. So I came here as the representative director. And then the internet bubble burst. They asked me to come back to the US. Um, I had a young family at the time, so wasn't interested in that. So found this university in Niigata that was looking for a part-time internet marketing professor. 
and just magically the stars aligned where um, the students liked what I had to teach and I liked being in front of a group of students. And so I magically transitioned into um, being a professor and getting my PhD at the, at the same time. And uh, so sort of all evolved from here. So I've, I've seen it marketing from sort of the birth of the internet and how that's changed how we actually interact with human beings um, to working with companies around the world. So. Thanks very much for sharing that story. Actually, I was I was specifically uh, looking for the answer to the question: How did you end up moving from the sort of corporate side of things to the academic side of things? And I think you've answered that very well. Um, uh, well, just to get to know you a little bit more, um, I saw on LinkedIn, I believe, that you studied drama. Yeah. Uh, in part at university, is that is that is, I mean, I guess I gather that's part of the uh, sort of I, I imagine a lifelong interest you've had that that also led you to the theater nonprofit work as well. Yeah, well, so I had this very strange. I started as a I wanted to be pre med, or I started as pre med, uh, and. From there, I, after failing chemistry twice, I realized that that wasn't in my future. So uh, I decided I wanted to be an actor. And I actually, um, I grew up acting uh, in high school. Uh, one of my um, small claims to fame is that Deborah Messing from Will and Grace fame was my leading lady uh, during my high school days. Wow. So, yeah, so, um, but uh, anyway, so from there, I wanted to be an actor plus do some type of business uh, thing. And so my, my Tufts degree is actually economics and drama. So I, I don't think my parents would have let me go through uh, Tufts just with a drama degree. So, um, yeah, so I ended up with uh, economics and drama. And that's the, this Greenwich Odium story is that I wanted to be a producer, um, sort of help uh, sort of enable all different types of theater and events uh, to happen. While I was researching for this interview, um, I watched a few of your, and you've got a few introductory videos to your books in, in, in various places. And in one of them you mentioned, uh, so there you were, I believe, working for American Express in Manhattan at the time, and you were writing marketing reports. Um, right. And uh, time after time you found, you know, your ideas were, only a fraction of your ideas were really making it to the, to the final presentation, uh, and you went for a long walk around the city, uh, <laughs> engaging in some reflection. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that experience, uh, and, and I mean, maybe just start by talking about what a what a marketing report is or was at the time, and you know how how much work it they really took. Yeah, and I, honestly, from what I see going on today, even I, I don't think so much has changed in what a typical marketing plan actually um, is. <laughs> Uh, but you, th there's a formula for creating a marketing plan, and uh, it, it's very intensively focused on you do market research, you may do some surveys, um, you're trying to understand trends and sort of future directions of where market's going, and then you match that with the capabilities of your company and what it is that you're actually producing for that company. Um, but sort of what I talk about in that video and, and sort of the... The problem with the way that marketing is taught and it's understood uh, is that um, it, it's taught as like a science, like you can just do this on a computer. Um, you don't need to actually go and speak with real human beings face to face or really go out and, and interact with people. Uh, and so the understanding of what marketing is in terms of um, a marketing plan and 
the actual act of marketing is different. And, and I think that long walk in Manhattan was sort of a, a, um, a series of talks with myself on, okay, what really, what am I doing? Because I mean, you just look at the news every day, uh, marketing has a bad name, the, the way that it's actually talked about. Um, it, it's used as like a, you know, that's just marketing, right? And so there's a misunderstanding of actually what it is what this practice is, uh, that many people just equate it with sales or advertising. And it's not, it's, you know, those are pieces of what marketing is, but marketing is actually much more fundamental. And because folks don't understand that, you know, there's things like, you know, trash emotions and, you know, people doing bad things in their communities. We've got taking advantage of employees or trying to, um, you know, take advantage of partners. There, there's all different things that happen because people are trying to sell more stuff and maybe use psychological tricks to do it rather than thinking about really fundamentally what, what we're actually trying to do as, as a business or as just individuals. Yeah, I've got I've got a lot more to, to talk to you about uh, on that subject about specifically you, you at the beginning of your book, you actually uh, talk about the history of the, the formal definition of the term marketing by the I believe the American Marketing Association. Right. Um, so we'll we'll get to that, but it's it's interesting right. you brought up you know sales and advertising aren't marketing, and it's it reminds me of I I don't know very much about marketing and I haven't read a great deal about it, but one of the things I find that seems to be true is that when it comes to a company, there's a lot of things that aren't marketing, but at the same time everything is, right, and yeah, it's, it's a very curious because because what it's about is so fundamental, you know, there's the kind of any interaction that someone might have with the brand itself even can be a subset of, of something managed by the marketing group. Yeah, it, it, that's exactly right. And it, it's something that I typically say right from the beginning of any lecture or presentation that I give, there's a difference between marketing and marketers. And so I can't speak for marketers, right? So, um, Marketers are the people that sort of understand or try their best to understand what marketing is and try to apply it. But my experience is people don't understand what marketing is uh, so deeply. And so what they do ends up turning into like tricks. Um, and so um, marketing itself fundamentally is it's built on value. And that, that means there's a, there's a human element to this. Uh, that we really need to understand and embrace before we even start thinking about selling stuff to people. And so uh, I've gotten into the position now where, you know, I've been teaching at the MBA level, I've been consulting for many companies around the world, um, and I've gotten to the point where a lot of the things that I have to do from the beginning is help people unlearn or just sort of stop where wherever they are with whatever they understood marketing was and just take a step back and start at the beginning and say, wait a second, what you've learned might not be right. And, and let's start at this human level first. And amongst the things I gather that people may have learned uh, is that although the word marketing has the word market in it, you, you like to make the point, and I think it was in a recent uh, post uh, on LinkedIn, actually, that markets don't exist. Yeah, uh, in the way that people often think them do. And I was wondering if you could, I found I was very sympathetic to that argument. And I was wondering if you could, you could break that down a little bit, what you mean when you say, you know, somewhat tongue in cheek markets don't exist. Well, I, I think that people, so the way that, I mean, from the CEO on the board, all the way down to, you know, the, the person starting work on the first day, is that people um, would like things to be simple. 
and they'd like to understand or they'd like to think that, hey, we've got this market. Uh, so if I look online right now, I can see that, you know, there were uh, this many hundreds of thousands of visitors into um, the New York airport this morning, right, or over the last few days. And so that's my market. So you can see statistically that there's like a group of people. And then um, we, for simplicity's sake, we want to believe that we have the ability to actually talk to and interact with those people. But the reality is, I mean, you you get it, I'm sure, in your position and many other folks do too who are listening, that you probably hear other people trying to talk to you or get your attention, like um, more than you have the attention span to actually focus in on what it is they're saying. And so even if you've got those 100,000 people on your a computer screen that they exist as a market in reality you're just you're you're kidding yourself and so um the the article i wrote on linkedin about markets not existing it, it it's much more um it, it's a little more complex than that and it's not hard uh, if you understand sort of what marketing is all about it's actually a lot of fun but you, what i'm trying to help people understand is you shouldn't get caught up with this idea that because your market exists today or your customers exist today that doesn't mean that they're going to be there tomorrow and the minute you start getting lazy the more the minute you start feeling like of course they're going to be here and of course they need my stuff uh is the you know is the day that you're in trouble as a business and you you use um this video of a murmuration i believe yeah uh, to give i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that i've seen some of those videos before and they're they're always fascinating but i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about about that and why what 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 the metaphors many metaphors in there mean to you okay i i love that video and i wish i could take credit for coming up with the idea of using that video but a, a very good friend of mine actually eugene hashimoto who's now um at a company called cheetah mail uh he actually brought that into one of his guest lectures for my classes and i just fell in love with it so if you've never seen a video of starling murmuration for folks who are listening just you know take a minute and look because one it's beautiful um, but what's fascinating about it is that you, you've got all these birds coming together at, um, at one point in time in one uh, place. Uh, but then over the course of time, they're constantly moving and evolving, right? And so uh, if you think about your market that way or your customers that way, uh, your job as a company is actually to be able to fly in and sort of, you know, fly with them, right? So if you become one of those starlings, you actually can start to understand how they're moving. And you can actually start to see, ah, oh, the wind's going to blow this way, or that guy over there is going this way, or this woman over there is going that way. You can start to adjust to the way that folks are moving. And so another thing I really like about that video is that there's a group that forms and then it stays together for a while and then there's a shift and it goes away, right? And if you think about your market that way uh, and innovation in your company or your organization that way too, it's the same thing that um, time goes on, life changes, things change. And if you're not watching out for the next wind change or the next thing that's coming, your market's just going to fly away from you. And so for me, that's a very powerful message about constantly being in touch with the people that you're serving. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, the, the, the way the remuneration captures the ephemerality, but also to some extent, you can't help but when you see these videos, like you can't help but get the uncanny sense that what you're, 
the murmuration is to some extent a creation of of our way of observing things, right? That that um, you know the birds themselves aren't aware of 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 this higher order pattern that we've named a murmuration, uh, right. and that we can see. And you write, you write. I'm, I'm, I don't want to start talking about your book directly just yet, but there was a great section in there where you where you talk about markets not existing and you say what, what you, you qualify it by saying markets do not naturally exist and then you quote the philosopher john searle who talks about institutional facts and that that really spoke to me that's actually something that i've that i'm that's that's a part of philosophy that i'm a little bit familiar with myself um and uh you know one of the ways to anyone listening who might not be aware of this sort of line of thinking one way of explaining it is to say that uh ownership is not does not naturally exist Let's say that, that let's say you, you it's very important to you that you own your house, but if it weren't important to other people that you were the owner of that house, your it, its importance to you would be meaningless. The, the idea that you own the home is an institutional fact that exists only because the rest of us all agree that it's true and that it has the meaning that it does. Um, right. And I think I think it, it's it's one of the things that you really need to understand in order to see why, let's say explanations of markets that go to two decimal places in like the book publishing market will increase by 3.25% over the next five years are complete rubbish. Uh, Even, even though they're everywhere and even though people love them, the really interesting question there is why is it so important to people that there's a type of reality to things like markets and things like ownership that they actually don't possess? Why is it so important that people why is it so important to people to find a science behind something that really, I mean, there, you can use scientific approaches to understand things about markets and economies, but they're not dismal sciences. They're not soft sciences. They're something completely other. What, what's your explanation for why it's so important, let's say, in, this, in the C-suite to have you know, numbers assigned to things that make them seem like they have a reality that they don't? Right. So I, I think so. I, I think you're nailing it. Perfectly, actually. So you're you're spot on. And in the C-suite, um, there's there's a need for command and control, right? So uh, especially if you're managing a public company, it, it's again in terms of ownership, that company is owned by its shareholders, and so your fiduciary responsibility as that as the leader, you you are. Um, mandated to optimize the value for those shareholders. And the way that those shareholders uh, perceive value is stock price most often. Uh, And there's a shift now, obviously, towards different types of, you know, investment strategies and those types of things. But at the end of the day, the financial world, you know, focuses on profits and returns, right? Uh, profitability and EBITDA and all of those things. So we're in a world where um, those quantitative measures are fundamental. And But the mistake is that we believe that that's what our business is about. And uh, so that, that humanizing of business, and I think we've got so many examples today that, you know, the, the winds are definitely changing. Um, but at this point, because you know public companies, publicly traded companies, are really the backbone of you know global economy right now, um, that we need to have those quantitative measures on markets. And stock prices will move if an analyst actually says that this market is going to grow or this market is going to expand. Markets will move based on that. So uh, it's something that we have to respect. We can't throw it away. 
But, um, and I think this is where one of my uh, mentors and one of the people that I've learned uh, the most from uh, is a gentleman named Steve Vargo, uh, who teaches uh, out at University of Hawaii Manoa. And he's created uh, with his colleague, uh, Bob Lush, who unfortunately passed away, um, this idea of uh, service dominant logic. And the idea that the purpose of a company uh, is it, it, to serve itself by serving others. And so this idea that there's there's a service element to the things that we do. Um, that also has had just an enormous impact on on my thinking because as a marketer, so the, the strangeness about me as a marketing professor is that I've got a significant amount of experience actually leading marketing teams and doing marketing. Um, and it's easy for a marketer to forget about their market and the people that they're serving and to turn them into numbers, to turn them into eyeballs, to turn them into seats. Uh, and I think that was one of the things that jumped out at me from the Clue Train Manifesto back, you know, uh, from a long time ago. It was like, hey, wait a second, guys, we're not seats, we're not eyeballs, we're human beings and you have to deal with it. And so that approach to thinking about people as people, um, I think is actually gaining a lot of traction now. Uh, but the numbers, I think, will never go away. Yeah, thanks for that really, that really great answer. There's um there's a, a couple of things that I'd like to talk to you about talk to you a little bit about later, especially about the, the sort of changes that you're perceiving happening, um and and you know moving more towards what you what you termed that or your colleague termed uh, service dominant logic. Uh, but before going there, uh, one of the pleasures of this podcast is that I get to interview authors who have various levels of various uh, expertise in very different domains, um, and often they have expertise in domains that. Um, we, the rest of us, you know, encounter all the time in the headlines, but don't really often get to talk to an expert about. And so you mentioned earlier that, you know, you, your career got off the ground around the time when, you know, the World Wide Web became a way that people interacted. Now, lots of things have changed uh, with respect to that type of thing over the last 25 years in ways that have been very, have very profound impacts on uh, the way companies communicate with customers and the way customers understand companies and talk about them. And of course, one of the things that uh, is often in the news nowadays, uh, including news about the news, is boycotting uh, in a way that seems to be different from the way. Boycotts are nothing new, but someone can say something on, say, a Fox News program, and then within seconds, there's a Twitter explosion of people saying, you know, like at mentioning specific companies saying, you know, you can't support Tucker Carlson's show anymore and, and things like that. And I was wondering, I wanted to ask you as, as a marketing both practitioner and professor, how do you see companies responding to this new situation? Yeah, I, again, I, I think this is where um, sort of my key word on this is, is value. And so that's why the title of this book is value plan and not marketing plans done better or something. So I, I think we need to move the discussion away from marketing plans. I think that we're done with those. And the reason is, you know, things like boycotts, um, because what you're seeing is a very impassioned subgroup of people or maybe large group of people who are really caught up in this idea that the company itself is doing something wrong. Um, and if that company is staying behind its computer screens, if it's not 
actively going out and building real relationships with people, talking to people, um, they're going to suffer from these massive swings or these massive movements. So again, that's where my, uh, that Starling murmuration video comes in when the market starts to shift and you're still talking about the same stuff, stuff you were talking about yesterday, you're going to lose. Um, and so uh, I think that those types of things are actually making it very clear that the old way of doing marketing is dead. And we just, we have to let it rest in peace. It, it, we had a very nice run, um, but the world needs a, a value-based way of thinking about uh, how it deals with these types of things now. Yeah, as a, as a, as a non-expert and just someone who's experienced it, you know, from the sort of more or less, I mean, Lean Pub and other things I've done aside, but like experienced these things from the consumer side of things. It seems to me that one of the things companies can't get away with now, and I think you talk about this, is cheating people. Right. Ha having, having basically, or well, not, let's, let's not go so far as to say cheating, but tricking people or just shoving people out the door. Uh, one, one example I like to bring up in discussing the way corporate businesses have, practices have changed in a way that sort of combines the business practice with the marketing and the branding is returning stuff. Our younger listeners might not know, but back in the day when you tried to return physical product to a shop, you often had to stand in a returns line, which would be deliberately very long and understaffed on the company's side. And then you'd have to literally fill out paper forms uh, and submit an application for a refund. And you would even often be subject to a kind of interrogation, an accusatory interrogation, all of which was designed in a time when products were much more prone to failure to, to uh, make you feel bad about trying to get a refund, uh, not just in itself, but like, you know, just bad about even having to go through the process. That's not true anymore. And uh, one of the reasons it's not true anymore is if you don't provide consumers with a positive experience uh, and, and, and with the clear, like, and, and with a positive experience that has behind it the intention to give you a positive experience, people are going to leave like the birds in that memoration. They'll they'll fly away. Uh, but but as they're flying away, they'll be you know tweeting uh, to each other. Uh, they'll be dropping some things as they come. Away. Yeah, and and in particular, and sorry to, sorry to go on so long, but it has, it really is a profound revolution. Uh, services like I mean, Yelp has problems, but one of the things that has come as a consequence of services like Yelp is that if you're a, an asshole waiter, you won't be a waiter very long uh, right. because someone will put a review about out about it. And if it seems honest, people will believe it. And then that business probably will find out right away and, and you won't be employed there anymore. And so, you know, although you don't want people sort of shit talking other human beings that much, uh, there's a certain type of cruelty that you just can't get away with anymore as a company. Right. And I, I think uh, this goes both ways, too. So um, I think we may be shifting a little too far um, in the other direction as well, where we're, we're oversensitized to things, too. Um, and so, again, it's a... Um, it, again, this is where that murmuration video goes. So right now, um, so that company... The, so the the restaurant that has a waiter that gave bad service, right? So that restaurant owner has this, the decision how to deal with that employee. So before, so pre-World Wide Web, pre-mobile phone and all of these things, right? We, we didn't even have that insight unless we really got an angry customer. Um, but now even the smaller things that are going on, we've got clear insights as to where people are making mistakes. Um, but... 
there's more responsibility for the people who have that information to you know really come out to say am i supporting my waiter or am i supporting my customers right and so this is where sort of the value equation that i talk about in the book this is where you know we really need some thinking because that knee-jerk reaction to fire the waiter maybe there was a reason that that person didn't talk about in their post right uh, and so there's I think we're coming to like a 360 degree view of situations as they unfold around us. And so we never used to have the voice of the customer inside of that view. And it's coming in, but it doesn't mean that we have to listen, you know, completely that everything the customer said is true from, you know, the overall situational perspective. And I don't know if that makes sense or not, but if I I'm in a situation where I feel that I've been taken advantage of or as somebody has treated me poorly, that doesn't mean that that's the only perspective in, in the discussion, right? And I, I think that's one of the issues related to, you know, social media and the things that are happening right now, that we're still missing that uh, cool, calm voice of, okay, yes, this did happen, but this also happened. And my job as sort of the restaurant owner here is to sort of figure out the, the optimal solution because I want to I optimize value for both of y'all, uh, both, both parties. Um, so I, I, I'm posting, so with the launch of uh, this crowdfunding campaign for the value plan, I, I'm you know, a little more active in terms of my social media. And I'm also noticing you know, if I post something, um, there's some people who really have some very clear messages that they want to promote that are only tangentially related to the thing that I'm trying to talk about. And so um, I don't disagree that that person has that opinion, but how does that play into the larger discussion or the larger context? I, I think that's something that as a manager of a business, whether you're, you know, a sole a proprietor, it's your, it's your, you're a single entrepreneur, or whether you're CEO of a multinational corporation, um, to understand that you've got multiple perspectives to look at, and that your job is to take, uh, you know, a value focused, you know, you you have to weigh which, you know, uh, voices are most important to you and why, and then be able to communicate that in a way that, you know, actually is principle based. And so that that really is a, a big challenge for today's leaders. Uh, and again, it's not just the corporate CEOs. It could be, you know, the, the dog walking, uh, you know, um, part time dog walking business that your teenager has. Right. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting uh, when you mentioned uh, having sort of let, let's say let's say a value plan that is principle based. Um, I'd like to t talk a little bit more about that. But the uh, one of the interesting things that this and I think most people listening probably aware of, of you know, what we're kind of talking about here, which is um, it's easy to get sarcastic uh, about about seeing companies do things, make claims about being principle based. And I say this as the you know co-founder of a, of a company um, myself. Uh, it's. One of the terms that one sees is greenwashing. For example, I think I think I may have seen a mention of that in your in your Twitter feed just mm. before I, as I was sort of scrolling through it before this interview, just to get a sense of a sense of its uh, voice. Um, and uh, I guess one of the questions I'd like to ask you is: um, Is there a way to tell the difference between a company that's genuinely acting on its principles and one that's doing it only in the sort of pejorative marketing sense? And uh, does it matter? If what the company is materially doing in the end is, in in you in you know one's own opinion, principle based. 
Okay, it's such a great question, and to unpack that's going to take a couple of minutes. But um, it really, um, this is fundamental. And I, I actually have an article that's going to be coming out either today or, or soon uh, through Campaign uh, Asia on value washing. So beyond greenwashing, which is just environment focus, there's other ways that companies you know, can say they're doing really good stuff when in actuality they're not. And um, in the article, I'm trying to explain to advertisers, advertising agencies, that they've got a critical choice. Are you going to enable the fake stories or are you going to take a principles-based approach here and help people tell reality, like really focus on value creation? Uh, and, and I think there is going to be a, a real split between the people who are embracing um, a, a responsible way of doing business and the people who are trying to take advantage of the system. Uh, so for me, uh, again, one of one of the people who I deeply respect is uh, Yvonne Chouinard from Patagonia. And he, he's got a book called The Responsible Company. And he doesn't call it The Sustainable Company because he said to be sustainable means that we actually um, – take uh, less than we give back, or at least there's there's a net zero. And so we're not there yet. So we can't call ourselves a sustainable company. So, But instead, we call ourselves a responsible company because we're doing our best to get there. Um, and so I, I really respected that honesty. And I, I think that's at the heart of um, the answer to your question is that if you're trying to pull one over on your customers, if you're trying to make a quick buck, if you're just trying to milk the system in a way to get ahead, um, that's nice, but eventually people are going to find out. And the, the question is, are you able financially or as a company to deal with it once people really find out? And so the whole greenwashing thing also, so I, I teach a class on sustainable and responsible marketing. Um, you know, there, there's ways to see that people are greenwashing. Um, but again, I just gave a, a, a post on something that Nestle Japan did here in Japan uh, with their KitKat uh, packaging. And they've made an honest commitment. Nestle as a whole has made an honest commitment to um, reducing its plastic waste by 2025, I think. Uh, and so Nestle Japan, in, in line with that, is switching to paper packaging or um, until they can get to that zero waste level, uh, biodegradable plastics. And so having interviewed people who work at the company, and I've got a case study on it too, um, at least in my interactions with them, they're very serious. They're, 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 um, I don't see any sort of trying to game the system approach. They're seriously concerned about the impact that they're having and, and responsibly trying to take action on it. But from a different viewpoint, and you can see in the, some of the posts that are coming up or the comments that are coming up in that post, um, it's people are still calling it greenwashing. And so, again, um, we're no longer in a position where we can mandate, we can, um, we can say this is the message and this is what everybody's going to say about our company. Uh, so if you do something, uh, you have to be prepared that people are going to misunderstand and I mean, I teach in English uh, and I teach people from all over the world in English and I teach native English speakers in English. And even in that situation, people will misunderstand what I say. So um, 
and I'm not not saying anything against people who are not native English speakers, but I'm saying at the very point of, you know, people who even share your same language, maybe even share your same culture, maybe people that grew up in Rhode Island with me, right? They, I could say the same thing, but there still could be misunderstanding. And the reality of doing business today is that people will misunderstand you. And if you are honestly coming from a principles-based approach, then you at least have an argument. You at least have an answer to say, hey, we're, we are trying. Thanks for the feedback. And teach me how to do better. Right? That, that where, actually, yeah, that actually reminds me. So um, I think we're, we're now fully in the, in the uh, realm of your, of your book. Uh, we went there without sort of... Uh, either of us really announcing it, but that's that's perfect. Uh, that's exactly where I wanted to go. I was hoping we would go. Sorry, and um, I just jumped in there because there was there's a quote I'm looking at here where you talk about co-creating value with our customers, employees, shareholders, partners, community, and planet is required more now than ever before. End quote. And it was that co-creating thing that seemed to me to be, or I was curious if if that was one of the linchpins of authenticity. That when something goes wrong, if let's say there's an, the inevitable miscommunication or misunderstanding, you can kind of tell if someone's cooperating, if a company is sort of cooperating with people, or if it's just acting in a one-way direction. It's like when things go wrong. Right. And that's, I, I think that's part of the beauty and part of the danger of focusing on value in that you need at least two parties for value to be created, right? So that's why that co-creation discussion is critical because so in this discussion it's just the two of us right now obviously they'll hopefully be uh, folks um, listening giving feedback as we go but um, in between this discussion there's there's a value exchange that's going on and if I only take my perspective if I'm just talking hey I want people to buy my book and I want people to do the value plan framework if I'm just talking from that perspective um, I'm not respecting at all the, the position that you're coming from and so you've got you've got a different value equation working on your end. And if we if I can't understand that or if you can't understand that, then we're not in business. We're not in relationship. And so that understanding that you are in relationship, whether you like it or not, you have customers. Right. Even if you're a government office, you have customers. Even if you are you know, a librarian, you have customers. Right. You may not call them customers, but they are because you're delivering some type of service to people that people are spending something of value to get. Uh, and so across the board, you're in relationship not only with customers, but you've got people who are your employees or people that are, you know, aligning with you to deliver that service that you're delivering. Uh, you've got owners of that business that you have to pay attention to, uh, shareholders or bondholders or whatever you want to call them. Um, you've got partners that are helping you. You've got the planet that you have to pay attention to. You've got society you've got to pay attention to. So. If you start thinking about that two-way street rather than the one-way, you know, uh, bullet train, you know, uh, communication path, um, you're on to something really important. And again, I've been saying, giving this message now, I've been talking for 15 years about, you know, value and why it's important. But honestly, over the last couple of years, there's started to be ears to really listen. Uh, and so I, I believe that people are waking up to this now with the troubles that are going on, with the rhetoric that's going on out there. I think this much more human approach to the business that we do is, is getting more and more important. I, I think that's a great, a great uh, place for us to switch to a discussion uh, 
of of value itself uh, and mm-hmm. what it means and how how you see its its uh, meaning perhaps perhaps changing uh, in the current context. And you talk you mentioned actually just a, a few moments ago value equations, mm-hmm. um, and you 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 go into some detail about some of these like the seven pillars of value. Uh, in your book, or the sum, the sum of you know, sort of all benefits minus the sum of all costs. But I was wondering, as someone who has has been, uh, you know, working on this uh, for fifteen years or more now, uh, could you talk a little bit about what 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 is value? So it's a great question, and I spent I talk about it a little bit in in the book too. Um, I spent basically a very long summer, and that turned into a very long year, just going into philosophy on value, um, and it's a really slippery slope uh, to get into because the minute that this switches over into values the minute we add an s into it and human values good and evil right and wrong we i sort of just get overwhelmed with all the things that are out there on that so um the thing that i want to start off with in this explanation is that i'm not talking about values so i'm talking about value without the s um and I've seen a number of different equations for it. And the one that I personally like the best is the one that you actually just said, that it's all of the benefits that you give uh, or that you experience um, minus all of the costs that you experience. I'm sorry. So I, I had misspoken there. It's all of the benefits you experience minus the all of the costs that you experience. And that net uh, as a con- as a customer is the value that you're receiving from a product or service. Uh, and so again, it's it's two ways. So each actor is experiencing that. And the reason that I do some of benefits minus some of costs and not do some uh, strange uh, like fraction or other more complicated um, equation is that value can also be negative. So you can also hurt people. And so just even if you're trying to do the best thing, the, the costs could outweigh the benefits. And so thinking about value that way, so is it customer satisfaction that you're thinking about? Is it loyalty? Is it employee satisfaction? Is it employee engagement? Is it um, whatever uh, educational levels within the community around you? The, the metrics that you're using are still within your control. We don't have a global standard for measuring value. And I, I think we probably won't ever get there. Um, but if you're looking at the sum of benefits minus the sum of costs of all of those different stakeholders, um, you're starting to understand the net value that you're creating. And you as a company or organization, or it can even be for you personally as a human being, and just as an individual, in the relationships that you have, are you adding value or are you subtracting value? Are you helping people or are you hurting people? Um, and the the research on this, you know, Kahneman and Tversky, the, the whole prospect theory foundation is that, you know, if you hurt people, it, it even if you hurt people at the same level that you're helping others, the people who are getting hurt are f- experiencing it twice as hard as the people who are getting benefit. So you have to double basically when you think about the total cost that you're in, inflicting on, on folks or communities or the planet. Um, you really have to think much more about uh, putting your weight on the, the positive side. So, yeah, that's that's my very 
brief overview and I could go on forever on no, it. No, so. I think, well, that's why people should buy the book. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but thank you. Thank you very much for that. Um, so you talked about uh, value, uh, but, uh, but uh, and, and one of the reasons you made that careful distinction between value and values is because you actually do talk about both separately uh, in your book. Um, and uh, you've got a sec- your section two in your book is about 12 building blocks and the number one is core values with an right. S. Um, mm-hmm. And I know that you've worked with big companies. Uh, you've worked with, you know, people who are in startups and entrepreneurs. Um, let's say there's a couple of entrepreneurs, you know, listening to this podcast who got, just, just got a startup going um, and they've thought a great deal about value. They're certain they know what, the, what problems that they're solving for consumers. Maybe they've got a few early adopters or I think you, you maybe use the term lightning rods or something like that. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, but let's say let's say you you haven't really thought about what your values are, and, and not because you, you're not a, not a couple of thoughtful people, but it's just you've just been so busy and so excited by the value that you're creating that you haven't maybe taken time to formulate values. How how would you recommend that people just starting a company go about having the discussion about what their values are and how they should formulate them? Yeah, if if I could, if you can, anybody listening can get one message from this entire discussion is that you have to start with your core values, period. And if you don't know why it is you're in business, if you don't know when the complaints start to happen or, you know, you start to get issues with creditors or like real trouble starts to happen and you don't know what it is that you stand for, you're going to make decisions that will be detrimental for the long term future and maybe to yourself personally. So fundamentally, we have to start with why it is you're in business. And there's a great exercise. There's a book um, that I love and have taught from many, many times when I used to teach brand management is it's called United We Brand by Mike Moser. And he's a you know long term or was a long term uh, advertising agency executive. And he would walk people through something called a tombstone exercise. Basically, if you know your company dies today, what would people write on its tombstone, right? What, what are the things that your company or your work really stands for or enables? And I think that, uh, again, if you take that from multiple perspectives, what do your employees miss most? What do your partners miss most? What, what would the planet miss most? Or what, you know, what would your shareholders miss most? If you look at that across all of those different stakeholders, the seven value actors, um, you'll get some really interesting insights on what it is that really makes you unique. And I've seen people go through this and like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's just another exercise. It's, you know, MBAs do this, but we don't have time. And I think that that is the fundamental miss of an entrepreneur um, or even just anybody in business. If you're working in a big company and you don't know why your company is there or why your department is there, to focus in on what it is you're all about. Because when you get to the points that people are passionate about, um, you will get you resonate with people. And I think that this is another key word that I use a lot is this idea of resonance. Um, we're bombarded with so much negative stuff. We're bombarded with so many, like this person said this and this person does this and whatever. But fundamentally, we have a group of people who we go home to or go out with or whatever, who we can have you know, resonating relationships with, like deep human level relationships with. And so when you're talking about stuff you're passionate about, other people will resonate with that. Hey, that that matches with what it is that I want to do or what I want to say. And so I will gladly pay money to your company if you can help me amplify things that I'm passionate about too. 
And so then when all the bad things happen, if you post something and you've got a boycott going on or whatever, if you've got an equal, if not greater number of people who are willing to stand up and say, wait, wait, wait a second, you guys are, you know, I, we hear you, but you're missing something. And again, it's not you that's saying it, it's your, your fans saying it. Then you're in a discussion that actually starts to be important. It's a, it's a values-based discussion. And it's not about the things that you do based on that. So, again, values for me, it's uh, uh, Steve Blank in his um, in his book and his work from Stanford. It's his step zero. <laughs> so before you even get to step one, you have to start at core values. And I, I couldn't agree more. It's it's critical. Moving on uh, to the next part of the interview, I'd like to talk to you about your experience uh, writing this book. You said, in, in a sense, in one sense or another, you've been working on it for fifteen years, and it's it's been it's been quite a journey. Um, I guess the the first uh, point of contact that we had with you was, I believe, in twenty fifteen, um, yeah. when you when you put up the first sort of early version of the book. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about. And I know you've got big plans for the book, uh, but it started, it started there on Little Lean Pub. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, about what, what you were doing at the beginning there and why you chose Lean Pub as a platform at that time. Okay. So for me, um, uh, I, um, maybe for, for better or for worse, I don't believe that I am the world's leading expert on marketing. Um, so there's so many incredibly intelligent people out there uh, doing so many great things uh, that for me, I, I'm just, I've put this through my own lenses, right? So I've read a lot, I've worked a lot, I've interacted with a lot of people, um, but I haven't been really confident uh, that this works across industries. What I'm talking about will work in like a developing economy. So I've got students from developing economies. I've got students from developed countries. Um, government, uh, I, I've worked with governments and coffee growers and like uh, hospitals. So all different perspectives I wanted to get in. So I wasn't at the point where I was ready to publish a, a hard copy and say, this is my work. Uh, I needed a platform where I could actually publish something, get people to read it seriously, and then get serious feedback so that I could edit and upload it again and get more feedback and keep going. And so for me, when I when I saw LeanPub, and I think you had done a presentation somewhere that I had seen online, and I was like, oh, this is exactly right. So I needed a platform that would allow me to keep iterating. Uh, and I'm a, a fan of Lean Startup too. So the whole Lean Startup philosophy of launching something and constantly, you know, working on it until you can get it right, um, that just what you created with LeanPub was a perfect solution for me, especially being a professor in a classroom, that I could um, train a group of people and then get immediate feedback. And then the next week I could have a new version ready to go and say, okay, thanks for the feedback on that, but I know that didn't work, but let's try it this way. And so it was a great way of sort of um, getting the constant feedback and allow me to iterate uh, and also to get um, clear evidence back that people would pay money, uh, that it wasn't just something that was for me in my classroom, but there were people out there who could actually pay something and say it's valuable enough. Uh, and luckily, I think over the course of working on LeanPub, I, I may have had maybe two or three um, 
refund requests. But other than that, uh, it's nobody has asked for a refund. So that platform or facility also that you offer is, it was very, it was a good feeling to know, okay, I passed the 45 day deadline. And basically people are okay to have paid that money. Uh, and so that was also a, a nice confidence boost for me. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that explanation. It's uh, it's interesting uh, what you were talking about. Just for those listening, LeanPub has a forty-five day, you know, no friction uh, uh, refund. We call it our one hundred percent happiness guarantee. And one of the reasons this is so important to us is that LeanPub books are often written in progress, um, and that's not just in the sense of like you know um, serial fiction, which you know is is LeanPub would be totally suited for that. But actually, you know, chapter one that you bought might get rewritten next month. Um, and then often in, in response to feedback from people, but people will publish books chapter by chapter and 45 days gives someone long enough to probably see you make some changes to your book in that time. So that if it is an in progress book, they know that it's, uh, uh, it's, it's being worked on and they've got, they get that validation and confirmation from that. And they may even interact with the author a little bit through our website. So although we make it very easy to get refunds, our refund rate is actually quite low. Uh, um, we're also, we're also a bit, um, funny in the way we, b- because we pay such a high royal, I'm not, I don't mean to be boosting lean up here, but because it's actually because we pay such a high royalty rate, when people go to get a refund, we show a little funny message, which is like, here's how much money you're depriving the author of. Um, <laughs> so that might, that might help keep refunds down as well. Uh, but, um, so not everything though, uh, has been smooth in your journey so far. You wrote a, a post recently called hard lessons in getting a book published, uh, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Um, you know, this is something that's come up a few times on this podcast with people who've had, you know, not only positive experiences in their author journeys, but also some negative ones. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what, what you were writing about in that post. Yeah, so um, it, it was earlier this year where I just finished, I think it was the sixth year through with um, uh, the value plan in my courses here at Doshisha. And I'd finally tested it enough with enough companies and the students had all done uh, in terms of their their work with uh, the project sponsors. They'd done enough at a level that I felt was beyond what a brand manager or assistant brand manager would do when they actually are working you know, out of an MBA uh, program. So I felt confident that I had finally gotten it up to the point where it was um, a, a real ready to be published work. And right at that time, I started um, reaching out to different publishers, and I got a very nice email um, from one major global publisher uh, that wanted to work with me. And I, I've gotten a number of rejections along the way, too, um, because honestly, in this space, there's so many marketing books that have been written, and um, I, I think people don't want to give up their old ideas about what marketing is, that the, the space to break in for a value-focused book is still a little tough. So for me, getting that email was like, wow, I've, I, this is great, right? So I um, rewrote my, my uh, proposal. I targeted specifically to this big publisher. And for me as an academic, um, more than money that comes from publishing, it's actually the publishing credit that matters. So to have a big global publisher publishing my work is much more valuable to me than the money that actually comes in because honestly academics don't make so much money with their books um, but uh, the 
honestly, that we're going for accreditation here. There's all these types of things where uh, on just a university level, having a publishing deal with a global publisher makes sense. So I was all the way into like, I was at the final stages. They sent me a contract. I was like, this looks great. I'm ready to go. And then luckily I had a, a good friend who's a book agent. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe I should just send this to him. There's a couple of places in here that don't seem quite right. Let me get his feedback. And he sent me, you know, he's on vacation. He's like, Philip, he's actually on a business trip. He's like, Philip, I'm not in the office, but here's some points you need to really focus on. And so with that, I was like, okay, well, I need to go back and, and argue about a couple of points. And some of the points um, that might be interesting to your listeners, one, in this contract, I would give away uh, copyright uh, without the ability for the book to go uh, out of print. So basically what that means is I'm giving my work to this publisher until I die and even after. So there's no, if the book doesn't go out of print, then I can't reclaim the rights at any time or whatever. Yeah, just just to jump in there. Sorry, I, I can't I can't help but mention also what that kind of one of the problems with that kind of contract also that authors often have is if the company if the publisher stops promoting your book, you're in big trouble if you can't get the rights back. Right. So basically, that was one big red flag. Um, but honestly, because it was such a big publisher and a famous publisher, I was actually willing to go along with that. And for if there's any publishers listening, I, I'm not okay with that now. But um, at that point, I was okay. Um, and then there were a couple of other things related to like how they would pay. So they were paying on uh, profits, not net receipts, which was a little bit um, in the favor of that publisher. So um, that was sort of not in my favor at all. Uh, and then the the real kicker was that so I'm trying so you talked about my big plans for value plan so I'm only one professor and I've only got classes going on here I want to be training other faculty around the world to teach value plan and so I've created an online course and I'm working on like certifications for this and um, trying to get a process where this becomes a movement that we've got faculty around the world who are teaching and consulting on this idea of a value focused marketing approach uh, and so this publisher um, would not allow me to replicate more than 10% of what's written in the book in any other media and so they would view an online course not as an asset or not as a benefit, but as taking money away from their publishing capacity. And so basically what they were saying is we're going to take your work um, until you die. <laughs> and we're going to pay you uh, in net receipts. So after all our costs are taken out, then we're going to pay you whatever is left. That includes all translations in all languages around the world. Plus, you can't do anything beyond this printed book um, to get revenue from the ideas that are here or to spread the ideas that are here. And so for me, that was just, um, that was like, I, I literally, I was, I was depressed. It's <laughs> just like, I can't believe this. I'm, I'm, I've got this great publisher and it's a great deal, but I can't do it. And so like, I, I sent the email saying, thank you very much, but unfortunately we can't work together. And so th that's what, you know, that was the end of the road with at least that publisher. And uh, you uh, maybe were depressed for a while, but you moved on uh, and you came up with a new, new plan. Uh, and you're, you've, you actually just launched the other day uh, through this service called Publishizer uh, a campaign. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, how, that, how that works and what, what you're trying to achieve there. 
Okay, so I was depressed for the exact 30 minutes that it took me to write that email, and then I bounced back, <laughs> um, and I got I, I got a little angry because, um, you know, I, for me, this has been my own passion to work on, and when I see people, we didn't talk about sort of one of the key things in the book, um, I focus on lightning rod target customer, and getting out, the idea is that you get out, you find that lightning rod group, um, and you go out and you speak to them, like not just find them on a computer, you go and you speak with them and you get their feedback on your ideas for the problems that they're actually suffering from. And you, you actually get immediate feedback before you even begin the product development process. And in every group that I've taught, you know, whether it's students or executives or whatever, there's a real barrier to get people over that. Like, oh, we can't go talk to people. It's really hard to talk to people. It's, you know, it's going to cost money or it's going to take time and we don't have time. But um, once people actually go out and speak with their lightning rod target customer group, the people that they think are their best possible advocates and customers, that interaction unleashes all sorts of learning and, and insights that would never happen without that. And so I've, I watched like people literally transform professor, you know, I, I fought against you from doing this, but you know what, you were so right. And after we did this, we learned this, this, and this, and now we're going to do this. Um, so, um, it's that, you know, it's, I've watched people go from not understanding how to interact with a customer group to actually, you know, building products and services that resonate, you know, hugely with people. And so for me, it's, it's the, I've put all that time and energy in getting a process that I think is the best. And again, the reason I worked with LeanPub and I still will is that I constantly want to upgrade and, and change until I can get it better and better. Um, but um, for, for me, getting that type of message, like we're going to take all this work and just, you know, take advantage of it, it got me upset. And so I went out and I looked online, I did a number of internet searches. Uh, and I found I, I was deciding to actually self publish. And, um, but the thing for me with self publishing is, um, I don't get that publishing credit. So it, it looks like I'm just trying to make a little money. And I'm not a real academic, basically. Um, and so uh, I, I don't want to, that's sort of my last um, path that I'd like to go down. But in my look for, in my internet search for um, how you actually self-publish books, there's obviously going through Kindle and um, Ingram Spark, and maybe I make my own imprint, or maybe I work with a small imprint, or whatever. Uh, but this publishizer came up as something where they're a crowdfunded literary agency, and they'll, if you can prove that you've got a, an audience, if you can prove that you've got enough people interested in pre-ordering your book, then they'll come on board and help represent you to a different group of publishers. And so for me, um, I've noticed in sending my proposals out many times, if, you know, Philip in this office in Kyoto sends out a proposal to, you know, big, huge global publisher, they get hundreds, if not thousands of those uh, in their mailboxes all the time. So there's no way for me to really differentiate myself. So I do believe in the power of a literary agent. I think that they have a very important role to play in this ecosystem. 
And the literary agents that I know, at least in my network, um, weren't willing to represent a book like this. So they're interested in other things. Um, but this type of very focused, um, practical guide is not what they represent. And so for me, it's like, okay, how do I get an agent or how do I publish? So finding this publishizer um, was like, okay, this looks like it could give exactly what I need. I need a different power dynamic. I need a different uh, structure the relationship with these publishers and I'm not yet willing to self-publish by myself. And, uh, since this is an interview partly about assessing value, uh, and benefits minus costs, uh, as I understand it, the cost to using publishizer, the very, the very the straightforward financial cost, you know, lean pub, for example, pays an 80% royalty rate. That's the way we like to describe it. Another way of saying is we take 20% of all revenue. Um, right. uh, and I believe publishizer takes 30% of the sales. They do. They do. And there's a number of other things that I've seen people in the self-publishing community fairly upset about. Um, but again, from this is just one person's perspective. So just from my perspective, um, I need an agent. I need somebody who will help me in these relationships. And I also am best served if I do have a publishing partner that's a, a global publisher, a, a recognizable name because that just helps with every assessment that I go through as, as a individual professor. So that 30% for me is the rate that I'm paying. But if I publish it, if I self publish a book through Amazon or um, uh, Ingram or whatever, there's all these percentages that get taken anyway. Um, so the, the thing that I like about Publishizer, and again, I'm not I'm midway through the, the campaign, so I don't know the end result. So I'm a little nervous. I, honestly, I've woken up a couple of nights like, oh, my God, what happens if this happens or how, how do I do with this, deal with this? So I'm, I'm in the middle of this campaign right now. Um, but uh, with that 30 percent, they don't take a percentage of the downstream um, deal that happens with that publisher. And so with the, you know, the publishing agreement that I turned down, you know, a couple months ago now, I'm still, you know, stinging from, you know, that lifetime until you die type of um, relationship. So um, this sort of peeling off after you've gotten a publisher just appealed to my sort of sense of, okay, well, that at least they're not trying to sort of go in long term on that side, too. And I, I've... You know, I've had other experiences where agents will take money in perpetuity for a number of things. So, you know, not all agents are fantastic either. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks very much for sharing all those details and for being willing to go into the weeds. That kind of stuff is, is really gold for people who haven't gone through the experience themselves before, not only for being prepared when these kinds of things happen, but for understanding that, you know, you're, you're not alone in history. Uh, right. you know, experiencing these kinds of things. Um, and so before I go on to ask uh, my last question, I just wanted to apologize for mispronouncing Doshisha uh, at the beginning of this this interview, <clears throat> but you very politely let me get away with that. Yeah, no, no, it's okay. I think it'll go by any any name. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so it's... Okay, okay. Um, and the, so the last question um, I always like to ask uh, on this podcast is, uh, if there was one thing we could improve for, speaking of, you know, Steve Blank getting out of the building and the lightning rod customers and stuff like that, if there was one thing we could improve for you uh, or what, well, for Lean Pub or one thing we could fix for you, what would you ask us to do? Um, yeah, I think it would be this connection from uh, going. So you're incredibly powerful. You've created 
honestly, I, I'm a fan for life. So you've created a platform that really helps an author um, get up to the point that they're ready to publish uh, a print version. And my experience after getting to this level is that there's so many options after you've got that book ready and there's so many pitfalls like so it, you can find it on Publishizer too the, the, there's not all nice things being said about Publishizer I don't know if this is the right choice or not and there the there's also different publishers out there that have all these different uh, things so I, I think having some type of graduation uh, experience out of LeanPub into the next phase of publishing uh, because honestly, as an author, my focus and, and as a professor and a consultant and all of that, my focus is on my content, on the stuff that I'm working on and creating. And what I've learned in the publishing industry is it's not built to support me. So um, there aren't until you get to a level that you are a best-selling author, you know, like really top-level sales, and maybe with my next book I can get there, or maybe with this one I don't know. But um, I'm not at that level yet. But so getting a friend. So what I've liked about LeanPub is I've never felt I've never felt bad about that 20% ever. Like that that's that's money that I'm happy to pay you <laughs> because. I wouldn't have gotten that other 80% without you. So that you're sharing that 80% with me is wonderful. And so you've helped guide the process. There's been all these, you've done amazing work in sort of, um, this is how you work with the system. And I've watched you improve over the years. It just keeps getting better and better. Um, but so having that friend or ally to sort of take your hand after you've gone through the process of getting through the ebook publication and getting the audience and getting your message and getting your story right would be incredibly helpful for me um, because I don't know who to trust, right? I still don't know who to trust. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah thank, thank you very much for sharing that. And, and of course, for, for the kind words about LeanPub. Um, it is uh, what, what, what we do provide people with is, a, a, you know, when they're ready to make a print version is a print ready PDF that you can uh, just, if you're using LeanPub's workflow, then you can click a button and get the type of files that you need to take to a a company like you know Kindle or Lulu or Ingram Spark to do to to you know publish your book and sell it. But yes, we do uh, because we're not in print sales ourselves. There is actually a bit of a, a fall off it that you're describing there, and it is definitely something we could try to address because even though we're not on on that side of the business, uh, it is something that we do probably understand better than than most people who are you know publishing their book for the first time do. And there's definitely uh, advice and things we can share there. Um, one thing I should note is that. We do have an author's forum. Uh, I don't know if you're a part of that, uh, but, you know, it's a, typic it's a typical forum with threads and things like that that people can create. And so we do have a community of authors who do have quite a bit of experience themselves and, and are, you know, they're writers and they're, they're talkers. Uh, they wouldn't have written books if they weren't. Um, and, and they're often very happy to share some of their experiences. Um, the other thing about this environment as well is that it's, it's, it's particularly the self-publishing environment, but, but just book publishing generally has been a, a very rapidly changing industry for the last, you know, let's, let's say 20 years. Um, it's just been going under, undergoing revolutionary change. And so keeping, it's not just that keeping abreast of it is hard, but it's that keeping abreast of it is something you have to do uh, because it is changing so much. And for us to offer a resource to authors who've now 
graduated, as as you say, to that to that next level is definitely something that where we can you know provide our own advice, but also draw upon our community as well. So that's definitely something that we'll give a thought to doing. Uh, well, thank you, Philip, very much for taking the time out of a Kyoto morning to to talk to me and and to talk to all of us. And uh, thanks for being a Lean Pub author. Thank you so much. It's been great. Thanks. And thanks, as always, to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a Lean Pub author yourself, please go to our homepage at leanpub.com. Thanks.